I think people will move on that super, super quickly. And I think the second that the, the metaverse and this new frontier of digital reality comes into a more accessible framework for people to regularly have, you know, a VR set that is, you know, portable in your backpack, just like a pair of headphones that you can slide on and off. You can take all your meetings from anywhere in the world and make it feel like you're in a conference room again. You can collaborate with people in any culture and have instantaneous lingual translation where someone who's speaking Chinese or Japanese or Arabic or Spanish, that the second you look at them and they speak to you, it's perceived in the language that you are comfortable speaking most fluently. You can build real estate. You can have artwork. I think the second there's, there's one, one more set of dominoes that has to fall and then the entire playing field will change. Welcome back to episode 16 of the Certain Uncertainty podcast brought to you on an overcast San Francisco Sunday morning. Today, we're going to be talking about some interesting topics and questions related to video game, the evolution of where games are going and some of the new technologies that are coming out and gaining some popular traction in the media right now. So I think we'll start off with some questions. Yeah, so really today's topic is focused on two questions, especially with the, I guess, evolution of the digital space and the different technologies like VR and AR and all that good stuff. Our biggest question is, with this new environment of the digital world, what is actually real there? As in, what is real in terms of value? What is real in terms of relationships? What is real in terms of just our own behavior and how we basically align the digital behavior to our own lives behavior? What is that correlation? And so once we kind of address that, then we're going to actually talk into the evolution of digital behavior. So, you know, what are the changing elements of this digital world and how will that then play a role in how we treat each other outside of the digital world? Um, and so there's a lot there. So let's just let's just start. I mean, what is real in the digital world? So I think when we start kind of diving into this question, a lot of what people probably think about and consider is the comparison of what is the digital world? Are we talking about video games? Are we talking about social media? Are we talking about um, kind of the, the, the financial space that's kind of growing and coming up right now? So for the sake of our conversation argument, I think we'll revolve mostly around the video game aspect and then into some more of the social media AR VR type of aspects right now, especially with like metaverse coming out. So asking that question of what, what is real in this landscape comes down to, I think two or three kind of like main factors. So real realness or reality comes from uh, an establishment of value. So if something isn't real, that it's just an idea or it's just a thought in passing or even just a digital existence that has no value, it's not really existing within the realm of um, exchangeable systems of value. And I think that's what creates definitive existence of something. Like we can send virtual you know, tokens, virtual gifts, those have real value in our day-to-day -day lives. Mm -hmm. After that, it comes into the kind of the metaphysical aspect of it. We're like, well, okay, what's, what's actually real when you own uh, an actual JPEG of something, or if you own anything on the internet versus anything in real life, you know, I can look at this and I guess the cost of goods of this, you know, iPhone has raw metals or uh, rare earth metals, has raw materials, has labor that went into it. So this is real. It had labor, it had value, you know, I can touch it. But now as we move into the digital age, people, artists, and all these new creators are putting out new products on digital marketplaces as well as, you know, digital platforms. So I think that's really where we want to take this conversation today. Yeah, there's a lot there on the real that I wanted to touch on. And specifically, 
what is real in the context of how it compares to other things. So for something to be real, it first needs to fit within some kind of comparison metric, right? It has to be, you know, if it's not black, if it's not white, uh, well, then it has to live somewhere in between there. In other words, for it to be real, it has to be defined by some spectrum of activity, whether that activity is some kind of light focal pattern or whatever, or whether it's some kind of digital in-game um, world that you're actually interacting with. There's a, there's a metric there, right? What you can and can't do. There's rules. There is specific elements to it that define it as a property in relationship to another thing, right? And that that is the, the most key aspect of real. And this is why it's challenging to kind of ascribe an objective level of real, because it depends on what you're associating it to. It is real in the context of another item that is also real. Um, you know, like a, a driver, for example, isn't real unless there's a car, right? Um, you can't, you can't have something mutually exclusively real. You have to have something in, in binding context to something else for it to even have any meaning. Right. And that's really where the real comes from. And so that being said, you know, that kind of gets us discussing into the architectural space of these digital environments. What are the different rule sets that allow behavior to thrive in specific ways to ascribe meaning to specific things? You mentioned a JPEG, right? An image, an image bears realness in its context to other images, right? If there was no other images, it would be something, you know, kind of foreign and, and almost unreal at the time. But because there's such a surplus of images out there in the world, an image has become a real thing as, as an image. That's what I call it. Um, and, and so, you know, without getting too much into the philosophy of realness itself, what is real in the digital world, I think really comes down to how you subjectively value things within these mediums. And so what, what that means, I, I think, is that, you know, how many relationships have I built in this, in this medium? How many items have I collected in this medium? Maybe it's a role-playing video game and you're collecting items along the road. How many transactions have you made, right? And, and this is where it gets weird because if a transaction is held with, with a non-player character, for example, some kind of bot online, would you say it's real, right? Because you're not actually interacting with anything that exists in nature in a, in a sense. And so, and I think this is how it's actually going to kind of go on with, with the digital atmosphere is that people are going to be interacting with more and more complex behavioral systems that are actually existing outside of, of normal human behavior. In other words, they're algorithms, they're AIs, they're bots. And, and subtly over time, our, our value of these algorithms and these bots become the real thing because we are associated with them so much more. And most of our transactions are underhanded by these these algorithms in, in these um, non-player characters. Um, so, so let me just ask you there. I mean, what do you think the effect of a digital world is when we're having meaningful relationships with algorithms now instead of actual human beings, right? Well, one day, hopefully someday soon, we will, we will successfully pass the Turing test. But that's an interesting perspective as we kind of look at the existence of digital relationships in different atmospheres like a marketplace or an environment. So I think one of the interesting metaphors that comes to my mind, firstly, is let's say we get a few decades into, say, the metaverse. It's the leading product that everyone uses as the collaborative communal digital platform for sharing ideas, having new buildings, selling products, artwork, all the stuff that is kind of like a buzzword right now becomes mainstream. We're used to it and we're venturing into your, your physical existence and how you personify yourself versus your digital existence and what your personality looks like there. 
But say we live in this world and we have a community, we have a sports team. But say the people on the sports team, half of them are real players playing with a VR goggles and they have on controllers. And then the other half are all AI bots that are scripted to just perform within a certain set of variables and parameters at some you know set level of randomness so there's still some fun involved in how the players interact but say we get to a level where a digital sports team say it's uh roblox or that like crash car video game where they're like playing soccer say we get to that level where a digital team has value but there's no actual physical entity operating that team and now you look at this entity as a whole and you can say okay we're worth you know six million dollars because of our performance people like to come watch does it make it less fun to watch knowing that a well-coded ai that has certain parameters of randomness built within it are performing rather than a physical human that you can relate with i'm not sure but you know that gets me yeah i mean that gets me thinking i mean it's a little bit of how impressed am I by this performance, by this digital entity. And for some reason, when it's a bot, we're not nearly as impressed, even though the same behavioral patterns exist in the same capacity in this digital world. Maybe you're playing that, uh, what is it? Rocket, Rocket League? Rocket League. Yeah, that's yeah. the soccer. That's the soccer game. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's not impressive when you had a whole bunch of Rocket Leaguers playing the game because it's not really a human in the sense that you can build an emotional attachment to it. So maybe, maybe really what, what ascribes realness is if there is an ability or capacity perhaps to develop an emotional relationship with whatever interaction or thing you're doing in there. Um, so that's really, really key. And obviously a bot, you can't interact and have a, have a, a, a meaningful emotional contextual relationship with it because, you know, you likely program the, the bot to just, you know, have pure, great tech skills, you know, very technical, making these turns, these drifts, boosting at the right time, frame perfect, all that good stuff. But nowhere in that code is there the ability for them to kind of write out like, Hey man, like, I'm kicking your butt in this game, right? And that's what kind of builds the the relationship. Hey, like you know, like I, I want to win the game. I'm competitive, and 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 a bot doesn't you know kind of antagonize you in the same capacity, right? Um, which is really really interesting in that there is this antagonistic relationship necessary for for any of these competitive environments to succeed, and for them to feel real enough to attract a large enough audience. Um, and so that's where I think you know the community space of these is very very key and. Maybe maybe we could kind of run an interesting thought experiment, you know. I was just thinking about, like, what if you didn't tell anyone that you were slowly releasing these bots into the game, right? And and you slowly released it in, into the comp competition field of these video games. And every, all of a sudden, you know, these bots are making the biggest uh, strides in the leaderboards, right? And and all of a sudden, they're the, they're the top game, top players. But no one knows that they're bots, how then does that change the impression of that that bot itself? Is it real? Is that skill real? I think so. Or does it become less real once we acknowledge the fact that it's a bot? Right now, it would probably become quote, quote unquote less real once we acknowledge that it's a bot. But what it makes me think of is, let's say, you know, Google DeepMind had their, their AI beat the, world's, the world champion at Go, right? So let's say... In the future, all other sports are, you know, trivial and the most impressive high paid quote athletes or intellectual athletes are chess champions and go champions. Or let's say we still have other sports like football, tennis, soccer, everything else. But what if we started paying teams 
the same amount of prize money or more to develop the best Go AI as as we as we physically could mm. and then obviously there's the rules well okay can people play against computers is that fair is it unfair you know the levels of advantage but when we're looking at the computation of whatever ai is built it was still built by a human like there are human constraints within the ai itself in in inadvertently but would we get to a level within football where it's like okay what it start with hey i have you know a replaced you know knee joint or shoulder joint that is biomechanical and now we can, you know, have, you know, I can, I can throw a ball 97 miles an hour, 150 times per, per game. And I'm never going to blow up my shoulder. I'm never going to have an injury. It's like, okay, now you have an upgraded bioprosthetic, but okay, it probably won't be accepted at first. But then after a while, you know, as it becomes more culturally accepted. So now people just normal, normally they're like, you know, I had a bad shoulder. It got it replaced. I feel great. But now I can throw a ball all those times and it never wears out. So then will we slowly transvert, transform ourselves, you know, joint by joint into becoming kind of like quote unquote cyborgs without getting too sci-fi. But in the same sense, how much computer can you be before you're not playing as a person anymore? Mm, right. Is the skill still real with the bionic exactly. attachments in there? And, you know, it, it is very similar because it is some, some form of artificial intelligence that exists outside of your own biology, Right. That, that artificial contraption, that artificial prosthetic inside your leg, it's not being directed per se by your biology, but it's being constrained by, by, by your biology. And the same rules that surround that prosthetic allow it to operate efficiently. But in there, there was still some, you know, mechanical engineer, some biomedical engineer that had to develop that product and insert it. And so it's almost like his brainchild is actually in your body, really. I mean, it's really interesting. But there is no, I guess, negative taboo with having those prosthetics. If anything, we're like, okay, they have disability sports and we got to make sure there's extra room for these individuals. That's how we see it now. But I think there's probably going to be, you know, the, the evolution as we start putting more and more weight on the automation protocols, in this case, you know, bots in a video game or, you know, prosthetics in a leg. I think as the value of these things starts to improve efficiency to another level, we're going to change a lot of the taboo structures about automating our, ourself more or less. So what you just said, imagine this, you know, we have like the greatest athletes of all time. We have, you know, UFC fighters, we have Tiger Woods, we have, you know, Michael Jordan, all the Kevin Durant, all these athletes that perform at the highest level. And they've had some pretty horrendous injuries, you know, Tiger with his, his car crash, the back problems, the surgeries, it's crazy how many medical treatments and, you know, fixes that they've had over the course of their career. But let's say what, kind of what you said with the, the Special Olympics and how there are people that we still want to fully you know, embrace and, and encourage to perform sports and, and to play and experience those levels of competition. But let's say we add on a third category. So we take the, the highest performing athletes and the, the most up-to-date novel medical treatment they can get is a prosthetic bicep, a replaced femur, a new ankle joint. And they are now disqualified to perform in the traditional NBA, PGA, MLB, whatever you want. And they go form their own league with other athletes who have either, you know, gotten too old or progressed past, you know, their, their body's physical, uh, standards and stamina to perform. And in this new league, they're actually performing even better than they were in the original league. They're jumping higher, they're running faster, they're hitting the ball farther. They're just dominating the original standards of the sport, but they're outside of those old traditional federations. Will our attention eventually turn away from these like 
traditional standards of like, oh, you, you're just hitting the ball, you know, 250 yards. I can go watch the guy who has like a biomechanical lumbar hit that ball 450 yards. It's like, I want to watch that instead. It'd be interesting, you know, and it's just the, it's just the structures of the standards we have right now. So it's, it does come back to the question, like what is real with our, our standards, our right. involvement? And, 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 and I mean, right there, you, you're seeing the contrast. You're seeing the comparison that defines its realness. It is real because it is better than something else that already exists. In this case, some 400 meter versus 250 meter throw or whatever. Which is value. It's better than something else, which means it has an increased. Right. It, it is real if it holds value and value is only created so long as there is a contrast, a spectrum for which it can be fit in and associated and compared with. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's it's in a sense the ultimate bartering. But now we're playing with our own biology. We're bartering out organs. We're bartering out like the capacity to move, to kinetically, you know, do these things in, in more efficient ways, perhaps. And, and, and so what is real in the digital world is less about the digital world and, and more about what is actually you know, in the reality. I mean, these things are affecting our psychology in minute ways that are breaking down taboo structures associated with automation outside of pure human sentience. And so, you know, I, I almost feel like there are going to be, and I think this, this is already true, but, you know, people are going to spending their entire life trying to augment themselves according to the, the doctrines of the automations in the digital world that they have learned. And the more you've spent in the digital world, the more, I guess, inspiration you can have into how you can potentially augment yourself to do these more logical operations in sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of where I, where I get, get thinking. I don't know. I think, I think we fully, fully underestimate how quickly humanity and our, our civilization and society will take, inv- take advantage of and move into a virtual augmentation of their own lives or bi- biologically available substitutions for pain points within their own body. We fully underestimate how quickly people will move to those once they become commercially uh, accessible. I think mm-hmm. the, the second we have you know, new types of, of hips and joints and shoulders and body parts that can not just bring us from a lower level of suffering and, and pain to neutral or, or less, but advanced beyond that to a level of normal to, to now superior. I think people will move on that super, super quickly. And I think the second that the, the metaverse and this new frontier of digital reality comes into a more accessible framework for people to regularly have, you know, a VR set that is, you know, portable in your backpack, just like a pair of headphones that you can slide on and off. You can take all your meetings from anywhere in the world and make it feel like you're in a conference room again. You can collaborate with people in any culture and have instantaneous lingual translation where someone who's speaking Chinese or Japanese or Arabic or Spanish, that the second you look at them and they speak to you, it's perceived in the language that you are comfortable speaking most fluently. You can build real estate. You can have artwork. I think the second there's, there's one, one more set of dominoes that has to fall and then the entire playing field will change. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the domino that has to fall is our own acknowledgement of our inability to actually exist in the same capacity as an algorithm. And, and what I mean by that is that as we continue to automate some of these features for our own psychology and our own behavioral patterns, what we can actually see is that we're outplacing our own core cognitive capacities. And so I think there might be almost like a logarithmic chart. There's almost like a plateau point in which where we, where we try to automate so much that we go brain dead in a sense. 
And then we can't even actually imagine the next iteration because we're so automated. And, and, And so, yeah, I mean, this is where it gets really, really tricky, right? We have to make sure we're not automating out the core features that allow us to build incentive structures and to do new things. Um, or else we get into really, really tricky waters where we have, you know, this AI, I robot type of premise or something like that. That is an, oh, that's kind of a terrifying paradox that I have not really considered before. That's like, a, it's like a neurological dependency paradox right. that exists that we get to a level where we've advanced so far automated, replaced, and, uh, you know, s- like made easy so many different things in life and our, our experiences and our work that you don't have to think to do anything anymore. And then we reach a point where it inverts, where we're so advanced, everything's so easy. It'll be like the movie WALL-E. You're, you're just a person in floating chairs on the spaceship and you don't know how to do anything because sure. you can get it instantaneously. Oh, that's, well, we're gonna yeah. have to figure out. Yeah. That's, and that goes along with like this ethical development of the technological revolution that's happening right now, which is the, the digital industrial revolution. Yeah. I mean, more or less, we have to make sure we understand what makes us, I mean, mental health is a really good cue to figure out where we're straying from, I guess, the core way that allows us to advance as a species. Uh, mental health is a really good metric, I think, that, that our biology has been building for millions and millions of years and helping us refine this homeostatic control system of fulfillment and defined thereof to not make ourselves go extinct. Mm-hmm. So we have to really make sure we understand that system and make sure we're, and, and this is where it gets tricky too, because then you can also get into the brave new world atmosphere where we uh, have everything automated and in order to keep that system alive, that the core competency of incentive generation, we have to dope ourselves up, keep our dopamine plugged because, you know, we're not getting the same stimuli that requires us to make decisions and learn in the same capacity that activates our neural circuitry to advance and grow. Um, so, yeah, we have to be careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's a, here's a thought and a question Go for, for you. So going back to to the dominoes of it, what the, what's the next domino that's going to fall? I I feel like we're already there from a technological aspect. The next domino that needs to fall is only a matter of time because what's going to push this over the edge of mainstream acceptance and commercialization will be when all of the people born after 2010 have their own levels of income to spend. And I think that when that generation of people born from there on after in the last 12 years gets expendable, disposable income, starts putting their interests into capitalism, that is will that will be the turning point in which all of these things will now catch up and become mainstream because they will be the first adopters as we go through and start embracing all of these new technological advancements. Because what we see now for children that are still, or t- children and teens who are still in high school and not in college yet, they're still living at home, they're still kind of working side jobs to support, you know, side interests. Mm-hmm. They, they have, they spend on their parents dollar for the most part. But once they progress into functioning adults, contributing to society, that will be the tipping point where everything starts to change. Because we look at now where it's unbelievably common for, for middle schoolers and high schoolers to have, you know, TikToks and compete over followers and views and likes and videos. And it's just, it's normal now. It's as normal to us. It's to, it's, it's, it's as normal to them as it was for us to have a Facebook when it first came out. And I remember everyone lied about their age on Facebook and it was, it was like a joke, but that's, that's beyond their generation now, which is wild to think about how fast that happened. Yes. It's extremely quick. Yeah. Hmm. 
So we got to jump into this evolution question here. I, I think really we get to figure out what the psyche is going to adapt to in this in this environment. And I guess what are some potential pitfalls that we might want to avoid on this journey through the digital? Because I mean, I don't see it changing anytime soon. I think we're going to continue to automate all these features. And I think investors are going to go out the wild because I mean, there's just so much engagement there. There's so much attention span being delivered within these these mediums. And and that is the trend. The trend is attention is focusing more and more on blue screens. Absolutely. We fully, fully capitalized on and commercialized the neurochemicals of people of children of people your attention your time your engagement your interests we've literally commercialized your own interests into things that are now sold to you ad revenue you don't even have to buy something and ad companies will still get paid pay so much but i think going back this this ties in to two points you made the mental health aspect of how we kind of look at and approach what pitfalls we need to watch out for i keep thinking about kind of retroactively and, and proactively, but mostly retroactively, when we look at the history of mental health and how we've approached it, how we've addressed it, and how these stigmas that kind of dynamically move around mental health continue to change. And if you were to try and come up with an, uh, kind of a hypothetical plot of what mental health treatment and attention looks like, for a while, I feel like it was, it was fairly low and linear if your scales are attention and population. So I feel like not only in the past, say the boomer generation was mental health, just not a thing. It was a lot of just, you know, get tougher, try harder, bury it down. Don't address it. You have responsibilities. That was the approach for a while. We've really moved into a new level now where it's like, it's okay to feel these things, address them, you know, interpret them, work with professionals. But as we look at these these changes, nothing's discontinuous. We started here and we've moved to a new point. And I look at this this median, like I, I like looking at the median of what, say, the most popular mental health addressing topics are right now. And you still have the residuals around it that are like kind of getting pulled into the median. Mm-hmm. But as we continue to move, this like median snakes back and forth. And when we're looking at the future, as people are now tremendously impacted by social media, by Instagram, Facebook, and all these things, it's a new challenge within mental health to address. And like, we really have to think proactively about how we're like looking at this. So, I mean, at one level, I think the prime motive should be in giving users more decisions. And this is the challenge because when a user uses a platform they count on the automation. They count on not having to make too many decisions because that's what makes them relax and that's what builds their engagement on it is that it's 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 a continuous stream of thought where they're not having to stop at any places and make some decision or consider some facts and so forth. But in doing so, what you do is you deprive them of the core nutrients of their own psychology, which is decision-making. Mm-hmm. At, at every level, decision-making is one of the most important things because it activates a whole bunch of neural circuitry depending on what you're trying to consider. And all those different associations in your brain, if you're not all of a sudden considering them, well, you're not making any connections, you're not learning, you're not growing. So at some level, I think the next generation of digital technology will be technology that puts user decisions at the forefront of prioritization. As in, when when Facebook recommends you a video, what were all the decisions, those micro decisions made up to the point where it said, 
do you want to watch this video? That's just one decision, but there's all these other decisions. What, what mediums are you scraping? I want to scrape this medium. I want to scrape this, this group chat. I want to, I want to figure out this, these, this cohort of users. And I want to see what's the most popular, you know, all those are decisions being made for you depending on habits that you have. But my, my thinking is that if you are aware of what your habits are, and then you could actually make adjustments to those habits themselves to then optimize your own pathway of, of content that comes your way, or uh, maybe it's, I don't know, some kind of dynamic video game perhaps, right? And it depends on what kind of mission you want to do. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on as well in the video game world is where you get to figure out exactly what missions you do in a dynamic sense, meaning like, you know, you have one potential route that you can go on. You can watch this video. You can uh, then watch this next video, right, or whatever. And in video game, you can do mission one. You can do mission two. But what if you did mission two and then mission one, right? Yeah. Um, what if you watch video two and then instead of video one in, in that order, right? What if you had the decision to look at the queue itself and then figure out based on your habits, because they're not exposed to you. When you're using any of these digital platforms and you're using any video games, there's thousands of passive data collection tools underneath the surface of it, undergoing, figuring out what you are, what your profile are. And this is what people get scared about because some, some, some phones have face mirroring where they can look at you where your eyes go when they're looking at specific images and you, you see that you're focusing on the, right? And so these are all decisions that are being automated underneath you. And if you don't, if you're not exposed to the data that you're collected, that's being collected from you, you won't understand why you're like, oh yeah, I do like this. Why do you like this? Who are you? Right. Mm -hmm. And then this mental health cycle starts to trickle down because now you don't know anything about yourself. You don't know. I mean, you know, this is the whole process. Every day you wake up, it's like, who, who am I today? Because yeah. I mean, every day is a new waking consciousness. Right. And if we're, if, if all those moments that we actually are going through to figure that out, what actually makes us a better, you know, self-defined human are automated, we're screwed. Yeah. I wonder that's, that's such a like cool perspective. So I, have you ever played the game like fallout or some yes. of like the Skyrim kind of right. elder scrolls games? How every one of those games that are our major role-playing game starts out is you go through and you design this character and you get the face and you get the, the, the species and the jawbone and the eyebrows and the tattoos. You can customize so much. And then after that, you go into this, uh, characteristics page that has, you know, different little sliding bars of like how much, and it used to be really simple, like how much strength, how much stamina, how much, you know, size do you want to carry a, like a bag of things? But then it got so much deeper where it was like, okay, what kind of charisma do you want? How much intelligence do you want? How much persuasion? Right. What if you could do something like that on Facebook, YouTube, Google, and Instagram and say, okay, instead of you doing a big five personality test in a microsecond to figure out always updating what it is that I want to see at that current moment. What if you could optimize your own search engines for these different platforms and say, okay, I really don't need to see any more like surfing videos. Right. I've seen them. I don't care anymore. Like I went through a phase, I was doing this, but now I want to go adjust my parameters and say, okay, this is who I'm trying to be. I want more, you know, uh, chemical competence. I want more phys like more physics knowledge. I want to learn computer science as well as, you know, baking, something like this, like optimize all your own parameters and say, based on this, and you get a number of points for each characteristic, give me more of this content. Because right now I don't need to see any more people juggling with like, 
you know, cats behind them. And, and this is the thing. You can screw up your algorithm. If, if one day you were in cat binge mode, all of a sudden this, this data yeah. point says, hey, this person really freaking loves cats. And it's never going to forget that fact about you. And for the rest of your life, you're going to be seeing little pop-ups of cat videos. But it, so I know they, I know generally the way the framework is built is you, you have a, a whole massive set of like three-dimensional and graphs and points. prioritization and, points. And then you can perturb the system a little bit, which will, you know, have a feed forward mechanism where, you know, the next N plus seven videos will be a little bit more cat heavy. And then they go through and rank videos based on what is the presence of videos of cats versus conversations of cats versus cats playing. It's unbelievable how complicated these organizational systems are to feed you the most relevant but diversified collection of space videos. It's and it's mind blowing how complicated they are that they know you, like you said, easily better than you know yourself. And, and that's exactly the problem. If you wanna know who you are, just scroll through one of your feeds for a while and whatever content's coming up, that's who you are. But that that is the exact problem because that puts stagnancy in the human psyche. Yes. And then they can't grow. So like, like, like what you're saying, it's very relevant content. It's really tailored. But in order to become someone of greater potential, let's say. Mm -hmm. You don't want to continue consuming exactly what you know. You don't want to continue consuming exactly what confirms your biases and what confirms your preference biases. But right? on, okay, so say on a serious note instead, instead of, okay, we're joking about like cat videos because it's the internet, but like, okay, what if for a two month period you had some really bad finals, home family problems, you were only seeing like sad music and like somewhat depressive videos right. on YouTube. And now all that you get fed all the time for music recommendations is like lo-fi, sad, nostalgic it music. It amplifies the you exact know, you're amplifying pathway. something that you felt in the past, but it's like maybe those triggers aren't there anymore. And you're like, I need upbeat. I need Beyonce, like Shakira, anything that is like right. mood lifting. But now you're not getting fed that anymore. It's like, oh, sad, stay sad, feed the sad. They like the sad. And it like kind of snowballs. That's because there's no, this is the problem. There's no momentary assessment for any of these platforms. Are you bored right now? Yeah. Imagine if, if YouTube asked me that every single time I walked in, are you bored? Yes or no? If I said yes, it would just wipe my whole user history, right? And I'd start again, right? And I'd start this, this irrelevant cycle and I'd actually be able to build today's version of me and what I want to see. Mm -hmm. Instead of having to, kind you know, you build out these user facts about yourself and you, you end up just not using them as much. Right. And I think it's a very poor engagement strategy, both on a business level and on a mental health level. So I wonder if Netflix asked you that question because they don't run ads. Because you because if, if the TV just keeps playing, it's like, hey, are you still watching every time you get that? And you're just like, oh, yeah, I'm still watching. Or like some sometimes you're like, oh, no, I, I fell asleep while this was playing. And then luckily it didn't play through the entire show while you're passed out asleep and you don't miss everything and have to track back to where you were. It's because they don't run. It's probably because they don't run ads. They get paid through a subscription model. It's not to their benefit for you to just like go through the whole show without actually watching anything because they want you to be watching as opposed to Facebook or Instagram, which would just, oh, the video finished playing, boop, it goes to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, and it just keeps going. It never stops. That's right. Yeah. And, and I mean, there is a tricky equation here as far as figuring out what these momentary timestamps are when you are actually able to change how that algorithm recommends you a new a new option or route. But I mean, that's the problem, right? Because you get into these silos of content. How do you get out? Right. That's the general question. How do you evolve when you're siloed in a digital world? 
right? If, if you don't want to be in that digital world anymore, how do you get out? Because mm -hmm. in, in, you know, that's the contrast here. In reality, you're stuck, right? You have these physical properties that define your behavior. In a digital world, that's not necessarily true, yeah. right? And this is, I think, where you're really getting into like the metaverse concept as well and, and, and seeing all the different environments you can be in. But in some sense, long-term comfort weighs on the mind. It, it slowly disintegrates the core faculties that, because if you're not putting any pressures on it, you're not putting any pressures to change, to grow, to learn, to activate new neural circuitry. And eventually you're just breaking down your core neural circuitry that allows you to expand and grow. And, you know, with all this automation and comfort that is inserted in these things, mm -hmm. it actually is going to be a long-term poor uh, engagement strategy. In the short term, it's a really great engagement strategy. On a long-term basis, it's terrible. My my uh, pessimistic fear of like the the metaverse and the theory behind it is that it will make reality, our current reality, so boring and obsolete that we will never want to go back. Because if you think about the level of customization and, and specificity that can happen to your world when you put on goggles versus my world when I put on goggles, imagine if you were to drive around in you know San Francisco and every single every single billboard building side had a specified ad to you. Everything was completely specified, and we're we're looking at the exact same landscape. Mm -hmm. But not only that, we go layers deeper. Now. They can look at how they can collect data on how much time you looked at the pink one versus the red one versus the blue one. So now your entire landscape is color customized so that it is more pleasing to your eyes. Everything you look at is your favorite color, is everyone's favorite color. It's customized to them. Every single landscape, every single background sound, we're all hearing background sounds, but they're each different. And now this, this unbelievably realistic customization to your personal it, pleasure, entertainment, and enjoyment is so specified and it feels so real because that's the goal is to make it feel as realistic as possible, that it has um, actual physical movement characteristics within it that you take it off and you're like, oh, I'm here, I'm back. Boring, 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 boring. Why do I need any of this? If I want what I, I have to go somewhere to see my favorite colors. I have to fly somewhere to see a beach or go hiking and see those, those trees. And now it's like, what, why be here? Like, why be here when I can be in my favorite place and do the same stuff that I would do here all the time? I can talk with people, I can play games, I can buy things, I can look at art, but... When the digital world becomes more real than reality. Exactly. Well, I think that's a great place to end. We'll let you figure out when that might be. But I think that concludes today's episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, everyone. If you made it this far into the podcast and want to hear more content, please consider following us on Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube and sharing today's podcast link with your close friends. We hope this podcast incites you to start some interesting conversations and expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, a podcast aimed at unveiling the certainly uncertain relationships between some of the most complex systems known to man.